This is a Cherish podcast, and I'm your host, Michael Boudreau. I'll be taking you for an inside look behind the glamorous facade of the interior design industry. At a time when every aspect of the business, from sourcing to trends to marketing to dealing with clients, is undergoing rapid change. Mistakes are made. Disaster strikes. Every design project has its setbacks and problems. But then there are the truly troubled projects. A client rejects a custom rug or sofa, one that was approved and signed off on. A contractor is unable to meet a deadline or just disappears. Shipping delays provoke meltdowns and threats. How do you overcome these setbacks, both financially and emotionally? How do you keep your firm afloat and your staff motivated? How do you get your confidence back? I have with me today three designers who have faced and faced down all sorts of dilemmas and have persevered. Heidi Collier is a San Francisco-based designer whose refined, softly colored, and serene rooms incorporate lots of vintage and antique pieces. She works extensively on both the West Coast and New England, and her work has been featured in Lux, AD, El Decor, and numerous other publications. Welcome, Heidi. Thank you. New York-based Keita Turner, a graduate of the Rhode Island School of Design, has an extensive background in both fashion and interior design. Her residential and commercial projects convey a youthful spirit through her mix of bright colors and charming patterns. She has participated in Design on a Dime and the Essence Magazine Designer Showhouse and has been featured on TV and in virtually every major shelter magazine. Hello, Keita. Hi, I'm happy to be here. So glad you're here. Former artist Crystal Sinclair was born and raised in Texas, where she started her design career, but she now lives in Tuxedo Park, New York, where she works with her husband, Ben, to create graphic, dramatic, and clean line interiors where vintage pieces mix with bold contemporary accents and carefully curated collections. Welcome, Crystal. Hi. Nice to be here. So you guys are here to talk about something that I think every designer faces. Nothing ever goes completely right on any project, but I want to really focus not on the small things, but what you do when something unexpected, a major setback, a client's unhappy. I'd love to get a sense like, Heidi, why don't we start with you? What is the worst experience you've ever had in terms of doing a project? Oh, gosh, that's hard to say. I kind of had PTSD when you were listing all of the (laughs) things that could potentially go wrong, because I think we've faced all of them over the years. I mean, there's been some big ones. It's hard to, and, you know, oftentimes it's a combination or like, it's not necessarily one big thing, but it's the project where multiple things continue to go wrong. Mm -hmm. And those are the most traumatizing ones for me. I feel like if it's one big problem, you know, it's like you take it as it comes and whether you throw money at it or, you know, figure out the problem solving, but when problems continue to kind of spiral, you know, it really becomes traumatizing for all parties involved, I think. Yeah. And Keita, how about you? Oh, goodness. That same thing. There's so many. But recently, a project that we had out of state, because we're, we're getting more projects out of state now, and we had one particular custom table, customized table, from a brand of manufacturer I will not mention, where we have had to redo it three times. Wow. Yeah. And it just, I mean, to the point where I think on the second time, the second rejection, I wasn't there. 
because my, you know, I taught my client because, you know, I wasn't able to be there. So right. I had it's to, out like, of state. My right. client, it's out of state. And, you know, not all projects you're able to just ship everything to a receiving warehouse and, mm-hmm. and do everything at once. So a beautiful install, I, beautiful drop the install. curtain and everything's great. So I had the client, I kind of, you know, train the client on what to look for, but I think they took it overboard. That that could be part of the problem. I think they they went overboard, but so they became too much of a perfectionist. Too much of a perfectionist. Mm-hmm. But I think after I think they delivered it on a Saturday, and this was you know this was the weekend. I get the call. I'm all excited, and I get the call, and I said, you know what? I think I need when I when I found out that something was wrong with this table again. I think I said I need to go take a walk took a walk and my back gave out. Oh, no, no stress involved. No, <laughs> no I mean, seriously, my back gave, like, it just, like, you know how, like, a pinch, like, mm-hmm. and then I was in the bed. Like, mm-hmm. I was, like, I can't, like, I can't believe a right. table did right. this to me. Right, so, right, yes. right. And Crystal, what about you? Have you, have you had a similar experience? I mean, this sounds like, sort of like a vendor problem, but also the client problem, you know? So... And the ship and the receiver. Oh, okay. Triple was, whammy. Yeah, it was just. What about you, Crystal? Yeah, yeah. I haven't had any issues with furniture per se. Thank goodness. I guess my time is still to come. Really, it's been delays with contractors and not meeting the timelines and um, things falling behind. And another one is, I think when the client and the contractor become too chummy and oh, the client kind of starts taking over and making the decisions and the contractor goes to the client instead of you first. And so any surprises or things that you could have easily kind of improv or found a solution, now the client's involved and they're really stressed out. And that to me is something that I, I try to steer away from and just have the contractor contact us instead, please. Wow, I hadn't even thought of that as a possibility. So there's many, many levels here where things can go wrong and get screwed up, which is interesting. And how do you mention, you know, throwing money at it, which is often the solution you have to do, bite the bullet, you know, the sofa comes in, it's too big or something. But, you know, you can't do that all the time or you wouldn't be able to keep your firm going. Is that an issue that you try to address in advance do you because like one designer i was mentioning about this this issue and she said what she does is every time that a client disagrees with her she puts it in writing why she feels so is this something that you do you know why i don't agree that you should get this sofa and here's why and you should 100 percent. yeah we i am pretty adamant about getting everything in writing at this point just so, you know, if it's meeting notes or a confirmation, you know, I pretty much insist on it. You know, our contract is pretty clear in terms of custom items are non-returnable. And if vendor returns are based on vendor policies, so at least we have those really clear guidelines in terms of that. But I feel like it gets more sticky if mistakes are involved and who's going to pay for them. So I think always the first recourse, like if it's a vendor's fault, then it's taking it up with the vendor to try to get that taken care of if it's the studio's fault. We will eat the cost. You know, I feel it really, I think that's the lesson I've learned over the years. I used to push back a little bit or, you know, be a little more reluctant, probably because it wasn't as easy to let go of that money. But now I just feel like the reputation is so much more important. And rather than, you know, get into 55 emails back and forth, turning into an argument, pointing fingers, you can do that on the back end with a contractor or a vendor. But I think in terms of being client facing, the solution is generally just to solve it financially as quickly as you possibly can. Yeah. Would you agree, Crystal? 
Oh, 100%. Um, I, I agree. It's taken some time for me to just get to that point. Because <laughs> sometimes there are a big chunk of change here we're talking. You know, a sofa that doesn't work, you know, that's not cheap. We're not talking $200 here. Right. I was listening to a podcast the other day and they were saying, you know, maybe it is a sofa. Maybe you've ordered a sectional, you know, the returns facing the wrong way or it's, but I think, you know, we have workrooms that also can adjust that. Maybe it's not buying a whole new sofa. Maybe it's being creative about a solution as well. Right. And Keita, I'd love to have a sense from you how these mistakes, like, let's face it, we all make mistakes. Yes. And I'm sure your team makes mistakes. Yes. Better when they make it than when you make it, because <laughs> there's nothing course. worse than when you're the guilty party and you have no one to blame but yourself. Of but course. how does that affect your morale of your team and the people that you work with? And have you ever had to fire somebody over consistent mistakes or something like that? How does that work? Well, y- y- yes. I mean, this this happened years ago. And thank God the client, it was actually for a commercial project, but the client was very forgiving and it really didn't turn into an issue when it could have or should have. So I had a an architect that I was working with. She was project manager and an architect, um, not architect of record, but just the architectural designer. And she made a mistake on measurements in one of the offices and the part of the, like the credenza hutch, it was actually in his, in the main office. Mm. Oh, great. Of course. the main office. It was in in his office. Right. And the hutch was, it was bigger than, it overlapped the window. Oh, yeah, that's not hard, easy to hide, you know? Yeah, like by, maybe by like a foot. Oh, that, I, that's you know, not like easy to hide. I was mortified. Right. But it was a type of, he wasn't even like, no, we need to reorder it. Like, I can't remember how we kind of camouflaged it, but he was like, don't worry about it. And it's not like he's like, never worked with me again or gave us bad, but yeah, never worked with her again, and also for some other reasons. But that was, you know, because I believe in double checking. And I think I depended on our to also double check those measurements. So, well, the interesting thing is, like, the whole process is based on trust. I mean, your client trusts you, you trust the client, you trust the subcontractors, your contractor, all the artisans that you employ. So when somebody screws up, the whole structure is wobbly and, you know, so have you come, Crystal, have you ever come to the point where you've just said, you know, this is somebody I cannot ever work with again as well, like Heidi did with this? Is this something that is a learning process? You know, because contractors, uh, we know how rare good contractors Mm -hmm. are. So how do you maintain good working relationships and what do you do when the when somebody is really just incompetent? Well, that's definitely happening. I think that's currently going on where I'm having to handhold oh, the contractors. So, <laughs> so sorry to hear that, but not surprised. Um, yeah, so we kind of fill in the gaps and uh, try to make sure that everything's ordered on time and uh, kind of exactly what I said. We handhold and make sure that they're doing their job and we put the timesheet together and we make sure he's on top of it. And then, of course, after everything is done, we'll thank him and move on our way. But yeah, you just kind of make the best of it and uh, do what you can. Right. Heidi, how do you find your the contractors and the people that you want to work with? Is it word of mouth? Is it experience? Do you, have a, do you have a set team now that you'd always work with? I wish it was that simple. You know, with COVID, obviously, our projects are kind of all over the country now. So 
it's not like we have these relationships like we did, you know, 10 years ago, where it's like you're working consistently with the same contractors and the same team. It's really, you know, we're finding different workrooms and all these different areas. And, you know, a lot of times now, you know, our clients are either asking for contractor recommendations and we're going to our network or they're bringing their own contractors onto the project. Um, and that's always an interesting dynamic because who knows, you know, you vet these contractors, but the client has chosen them. So you only have so much control over that process and you can run into some serious issues with that. You know, client contractors that aren't used to doing the level of work that you're, you're providing or the level of detail that you're looking for. And it can so quickly devolve into kind of this like back and forth finger pointing or, and I've really just taken the approach of, you know, even if the contractor's to absolutely terrible, doing all that we can on our end to manage whatever we can for the client to make the process feel at least somewhat seamless versus pointing out every mistake. Like I really believe in ironing out any issues that you can without the client knowing about them right. first. Make it look effortless. Exactly. Right. Right. Yes. But I could imagine that if it's the client's own contractor, I, this is again, something I'd not never thought about that would make it more likely with Crystal's issue where the client goes to the contractor directly, which would complicate mm -hmm. everything. So it's like, 100%. how do you navigate that? Do you try and put things into writing? Do you have meetings with the contractor before you get started? How, how does that work on it? I mean, I, I, you know, clearly each case is different, but just in general. I mean, even if you do, I mean, I have a project in D.C. now in a condominium building and I, you know, can't, I don't want to say too much because, you know, in case people were <laughs> listening. But I do recall, like, we interviewed three different contractors to the point where we went to see their work, you know, identified a contractor that really loved. And also they had worked on a project in the same building. Uh-huh. Of a Which friend of theirs. Of a friend of theirs. So that's an advantage, so one would think. That was an advantage. So, but, you know, got the bids back, but then switched up. I think we, there was a little lag in the project, you know, which does happen sometimes um, due to life. And somehow a new contractor was introduced from the client's end, who is a friend of theirs. Oh, really? Okay. This is getting better by the moment. And kind of owes them a solid, that type of situation. So I have no choice, but it's not a smooth ride. It's not. And they're also of a different generation. <laughs> mm -hmm, <laughs> so, mm -hmm. Like my parents' generation. <laughs> so that's been very challenging as well. They're not necessarily a contractor that I would have selected because they're also trying to throw out ideas. I prefer, and you know, we do prefer if we can work with contractors that we have worked with before or have selected that understand our like the our level, our the the, the ideas that we want to put forth. And it just it's it's a smoother ride. It's a smoother situation. Right. Right. And do clients generally understand that? Like, Crystal, have you noticed? I know you work with your husband, which is so interesting to me. Like, clearly your team and everything. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when you have a good team, you have a shorthand. Like, things go much more quickly. It's intuitive. You understand. You don't have to explain everything. And, like, I just know from my end, even doing publications, when you work with somebody the second or third time, it just goes so much more quickly. Mm -hmm. So, do the clients understand the importance of that generally, do you think? That it's to their advantage? That things will get done faster? Or no? Um, I... Some do, I will say, but sometimes, especially lately with bids being higher, it's been about trying to find a bid that is more 
I guess, more affordable. And I always try to warn people it's not, yeah, exactly. And another problem is lately that contractors are very busy and a lot have been able, you know, just turn down projects or say, I can't take this on for a while. So we've definitely had to look for new contractors lately. Yeah. You know, like you said, if it's a vendor mistake, you send it back second time, third time, depending on what it is. But all the furniture companies and they're all backed up, too, because of the delivery delays or all the COVID. So do you find that they're giving you more pushback on returns or, or alterations? Is that is that becoming a problem? I think it depends. Like, I mean, the, the scenario that I explained earlier, I have a rep, so I'm not dealing. Um, and they want our business. Right. So I was like, we, we, we will have to kind of halt more orders until we get this situation right. Uh-huh. So that's a little bit of pressure you can apply. Yes. Yes. Okay. And, you know, and I do, you know, make grievances, our grievances, you know, known and give, you know, feedback. Like I would want feedback, um, you know, from anybody, you know, and I think that they should want it as well, um, especially on the, the, uh, freight and delivery and handling in, that's where we have had the most problems really mm-hmm. recently, really is on the the end of it, the, you know, delivering, getting the goods in good condition and in a reasonable time. The amount of damages that we are dealing with is, I mean, it's unprecedented. We, I feel like I get an email at least once a day from any receiver that we're working with, this came in damaged, this came in damaged. And I think it's, you know, the past two years have been so rough on showrooms and, you know, everybody, it's just been an inundation mixed with supply chain issues and changing of reps, changing of staff, you know, not having enough staff, but I feel like there is, we're starting to get more responsive vendors now. And I've, we have not had issues with vendors dealing with damages. Most people I think are so used to it at this point that they're just compensating you to get everything repaired. And I can't imagine how much they're dealing with. Right. Well, it's so ironic. The price of shipping has skyrocketed. But meanwhile, the delays have also increased. And the, it sounds like the quality of the deliveries is worse. I mean, so it's like that's, again, another triple whammy here that's complicating everything. And how are clients responding to that? Do they understand? I mean, obviously, you don't go crying to the client every time there's delay saying, oh, you're not going to believe this. But are they generally, do they understand that? No. Things? I mean, no. I have one client that was like <laughs> during the middle, during COVID, and they live in a state that doesn't, opposite of New York. And she really felt like these manufacturers and these companies were using COVID as an excuse. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Well, you know, there are a lot of people when, you know, wealth sort of gives you a barrier to the real world. You're protected. You're in a bubble and they don't want to look beyond the bubble. They, so. they don't. There was another uh, crazy table situation with a now this was the with the receiver again this was the out of state receiver that I was using and they and I don't know how you guys how you deal with your receivers but almost like as soon as the goods were they received the goods the clock was on like they started charging like storage cost <laughs> even be, like almost even before they even set up the delivery date so eventually, but there was one like, one instance where they, this was like, I mean, everything was going fine until there was this instance with a table. And again, the client was supposed to be there. The client wasn't there. Their on-site cleaning live-in was there. 
and accepted the table. <laughs> I didn't realize that. The table was damaged, but she uh-huh. didn't know. Like, she didn't uh-huh. relay the information right. to her on-site staff. And the receiving company hid the damage. They actually turned the table and like, so it was in 15 minutes, within 15 minutes, we called them, but then it ended up being a whole back and forth to the point where, you know, I was we were trying to get the credit card company involved. And then I was, you know, thinking of like putting something out on Yelp, you know. It's a glamorous <laughs> life, you guys. <laughs> you decorators lead such a glamorous, glossy life. I mean, it, it got nasty. It actually right. got nasty. Yeah. And then I thought, and then I said, you know what? I'm not going to do that because you never know. This could get really nasty. The next thing you know, there's horrible Yelp reviews about, you know, reciprocated. So I just found another receiver. But I have a sol- simple solution for you, Akita. All you have to do is now design all your homes without any tables. <laughs> Hi, everybody. Thanks for tuning in. I hope you're enjoying our podcast. My name is Anna Brockway, and I'm the co-founder and president of Cherish. If you're a designer who's struggling with long lead times from suppliers and increasingly impatient clients, now is the time to shop with us. Our vintage antique and one-of-a-kind inventory is ready to ship right now. To learn more, visit Cherish.com. That's C-H-A-I-R-I-S-H.com. And now back to the show. All joking aside, it's re- I mean, there are so many factors and levels, so many people involved. And, you know, something as simple as g- having a table made and have it delivered and installed in a house. You know, there's so many avenues t- for disaster to penetrate. And it's like, I'm, I'm fascinated by the, that you guys continue to do this work because it is so fraught, you it's, know? It's, I, mean, I think it's hard. I think there's like a perception of this industry that it's, it's like such a glam job, right. you know, like so glamorous, the life of an interior designer. And I'm like, it could not be more obvious <laughs> from the truth. You know, we're sitting over here flat on my back from dealing with, you know, emails all day long, contractor problems. And, you know, just like you said, it's constantly something new. You're like, I didn't even know that that could go wrong. Mm-hmm. Right. And here we are, another thing on the list it is just, yeah, behind the scenes is so different than what it looks like. Yeah. I want to get back a little to clients and client expectations at the moment because everybody's been unprecedentedly busy for the last two years. I mean, much we thought COVID was going to end the design world and it's, it's said it supercharged it. But do clients now, do you feel, because I, I, I've heard from some designers that clients are more difficult than ever. You know, they're more demanding more litigious. I don't know if any of you have ever been sued by a client, but I do know some designers who have. And I wanted to know how you handle that. Is it, do you put, get everything in writing? Like we were talking about, I mean, but although you can't put everything into writing because like Heidi was just saying, there's just things pop up that you never would have expected. So how do you go about that? Because also design is a very intimate thing. You're working with these clients in their homes, how they live every day. As I mentioned, trust is so important. How do you establish these guidelines and boundaries without making it seem like this is just a straightforward business dealings? Because it's not. Crystal, what do you do? How do you approach it? I try to set expectations pretty where they should be. I definitely, before we start a project, I always say there's going to be something that pops up. Every project has some some surprise. And I feel like being very honest and transparent with clients has been a very good way to navigate the whole, just again, the expectations and just not setting their expectations so high or 
too short of a timeline or when they're going to move in. I try to, you know, we should add a month onto that just in case. Or so, yeah, I really try to set the expectations, what lower or higher, whichever way that goes. Um, <laughs> so they're not blindsided too much if something does go awry. I didn't know, you know, obviously we, we didn't know this prior to COVID, but once we were in the midst of COVID, I now there's something, there's a clause, there's language in the contract that talks about these lead times and gives the... So you've added that on to your standard contract. Okay. I've added in there. Okay. Yes. Yeah. 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 Oh, that's interesting. How about you, Heidi? Have you had to adjust your contract for the new reality? Yeah, I think the contract, my contract is kind of a living document at this point. I mean, you know, every <laughs> project that comes up, you're like, oh, I need to add this now and probably should add this too. But it is a fine line, like you're saying, you don't want to turn people off either with, you know, all of these, like it has to be, it has to benefit both parties. And it has to feel like that, that it's a mutual, you know, relationship um, that you're just not trying to win everything. So I think it's a fine line. But yeah, I mean, we are constantly, you know, as issues come up, all of that, but we also have implemented like a pretty extensive process document that we send along with what Kitty was saying about with like an, a proposal and an estimate. And everything again is just written down. All of our processes, what you can expect, what this you know the whole year or several years is going to look like. So at least you can point back to that. And yes, it doesn't always work. Even if you have something in writing, client, it is emotional, like you're saying, and clients don't really care. But at least you have that behind you, so you can say, listen, we talked about this. Is it was it? we agreed to this, this is what's in the contract. So you do have a backup in case you do get a litigious client, which does happen, or people are unhappy, you know, you can at least back yourself up. Yeah. Thank God. I've never had a litigious client. Thank Lucky goodness. You. But they would just get practice anyway. They, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I was like, they would just get practice. They would can't get, get blood from a stone, right? <laughs> <laughs> but even if, even when you do put things in writing, recently I remember I was, uh, over in Spain, and I, a client was just calling and calling, getting these calls coming through. And then I was checking emails, and I see, and don't ask, though, that's a whole nother story why the client was even on some of these, CC'd on some of these emails. A client reached out to the production, like the customer service of a well known company, and said that they never authorized this order. Oh. So you, uh, I, so I. I'm like, like, what? Yes, you did. So I, you know, I had to send like this very stern, kind of stern, but like this email saying, yes, you did. We went over this X amount of times. We reviewed blah, blah, blah. You signed off because nothing gets ordered. I mean, there's that, like, we're not ordering right. anything with right. that. Yeah. You don't need it. It's for the client. Yeah, the client has to pay for it. Right. I, it's just like, where is this coming from? And I don't know if they, and you know, and their spreadsheets, there's that. So I just don't understand like why, what happened, except, I mean, I know what happened. It's fear of cutting budget back. And now they're fearful. Right. Of, Wait, did I buy that? Right, right. Or my husband's going to freak out when he sees that I paid this X amount of dollars for this sideboard or whatever, you know, I know. But it's like, I guess it, the part of the secret is you got to get it in writing, right? I mean, it's terrible, but. That's the thing. Now, has it ever happened to any of you like something, you know, like, let's say you all agree on the paint color for the walls. The the room is painted. The client comes in and says, oh, my God, I hate this color, even though it was approved, signed off on and everything. And, you know, because um, a color on a swatch is different than a color on a wall. And same with fabric. A swatch looks different when you have it on a sofa. So 
how do you handle that kind of situation where it's like, this is what we agreed on. And A, it's, you, you like it because it's part of your vision for the, for the space. So it's a matter of calming them down. What, how, I mean, I, obviously each situation is different, but generally, how would you handle that? Oh, my gosh. I have not had that happen. Thank God. Um, oh, good. <laughs> fingers crossed it doesn't. <laughs> like, oh, my God. This whole thing is scaring me. No, I think something that we do that I helps visualize or helps the client see your vision is we offer or we, know, we don't offer. We kind of make the client or we include in our whole package a lot of renderings. And at first I, I wasn't on board with the renderings. I felt like it was a little bit of cheating, but it really calms a lot of anxiety from the client, like midway when they start panicking because everything's a mess. They have something to look at that they know what it's going to look at. And also it does show kind of what color of wall I have in mind mm-hmm. and what just everything. So that is something I feel that's been very helpful. Interesting. Do you, are they computer renderings that you do or do you just have somebody draw them? Or? They are computer renderings. We outsource them, but mm-hmm. they're very good renderings. And uh, the only problem I think with the renderings is they look so real, but they are cold at the same time because it is a rendering. Right. And I mean, I, I taking the side of a client, you know, you guys come in, you disrupt their whole house. They probably have to move out most of the time. You know, you have a timeline. Maybe you're close to the timeline. Often you're not going to be because of the contractor's deliveries, all that other stuff. And then in the midst of all this chaos, they realize, oh, my God, I'm paying, you know, $20,000 for this sideboard. That's Where is it going to go in the midst of all this chaos? So I think it is hard. I think actually the renderings are probably a good idea. Do you do the same thing, Heidi? Do you do mood boards? How do you... We do kind of a combination and I, we have been talking more about doing renderings. I'm, it's, it's always the question of the fine line of like wh- how much the client's going to be billed for design hours right. and how you manage that balance. But we do them for probably about 25 to 40% of our projects currently. And it is helpful. It, it can also be unhelpful, I will say, because, you know, sometimes they don't convey exactly or sometimes it turns the client off to something that you're like, no, I know that's going to be fantastic. You just have to trust me. So I do think it's a really fine mine. Yeah. Yeah. And Keita, what about you? Do you, how do you reassure your clients? Yeah. I, you know, we do, we don't do renderings a hundred percent of the time. Um, it also depends on if the clients want to pay for them. I mean, I know I've spoken to some other designers. They do, they include the renderings within their design fee. I've been, you know, how much does it cost to do renderings? I'm sorry. I just, sorry to interrupt, but how much generally would it cost to do renderings for like a three bedroom apartment or something? You charge by the angle. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's I mean, so I think, interesting. I, I think, yeah, that. so it's and by, by the, the options. Yeah, by the options. Um, oh. I mean, I think it, I don't know. I could, it could range anywhere from. I mean, you want net cost, or <laughs> well, I mean, yeah, it could, it, yeah. I mean, it could range anywhere from. I would say I don't know, three to fifteen hundred. Okay. Yeah, I would say a thousand to two thousand per room if it's a good oh, size wow. room. 400 and... Oh, my God. Send us your person, Crystal. But is that an angle or is that per room? That's per angle. Yeah, so that's what I'm saying. So mm-hmm. per, like, yeah. So yeah. Okay. Per, the, no, the number I was giving was per Okay, angle. I just want to have a sense of what yeah. you're asking for the clients to pay for, it, you know? I, yeah. You know, I don't do what you guys do. And I'm kind of with Heidi. I, find, I like things to flow and to evolve. Like, definitely mood boards, definitely con- concept boards. I would like to maybe start doing more 
renderings and just even from the standpoint of like showing maybe for our firm, just showing what else we can do that may be outside of the New York City area, just putting something on the boards just for our own sake. But I don't like it when maybe the client is too, wants to adhere too much to a rendering mm-hmm. because it could change. Things could change. You might introduce something else into the mix. And to me, right. it's kind of you like find a, a perfect antique piece or vintage piece that's just, oh, this going to add so much pizzazz to the room. And they're like, well, it's not on the rendering, you know. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. 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 I could see that it ties you up a bit. But at the same time, as like Crystal was saying, I could see that it would be very reassuring in the midst of all this chaos that's going on that you could say, no, no, look, it's this is it's going to happen. It's going to happen. And, and, and I prefer hand watercolor renderings right. just, just right. from an aesthetic standpoint, right. but I know that the, the computer renderings are what people ooh and awe over. You know, they like the realism. And you can always, or at least with who we work with, you can always swap out the pieces. So if you do have the rendering and you're like, I do want to change the console, they'll change it out. I mean, there is a fee, of course, but I don't know, just if the project does evolve to something different, the rendering can too. And have you found in your experience that when you're doing a, like ordering a sofa or a custom rug or something that's a major expense or the fabrics for elaborate curtains, if you do those or whatever, does it help that the client has seen the fabric or the rug sample in person? You know, all of that. How, how much handholding slash shopping do you do with your clients? I'd love to get a sense. Heidi, how about you? I mean, it's very collaborative in terms of like, you know, we're sharing a Pinterest board or some sort of inspiration just to start. And, you know, some clients are more collaborative than others and they will send ideas or, hey, some I've had clients that go to the design center before and start pulling fabric. So there is an element of that. But in terms of, you know, we pull together a really comprehensive presentation by the time we're presenting. It's the full house top to bottom, every single fabric, you know, down to trends. So I do think it's helpful for them to like see, touch and feel mm-hmm. all of that. Uh, you know, with the long distance projects now, like we're not doing every presentation in person. We generally send a sample box out for those that's got everything. It's nicely labeled. It's pretty. And it is very helpful to have those. You cannot convey fabric or wallpaper like on a design board in the way that it, it is to touch it. And so I think it is helpful to have the physical yeah. samples. Yeah. hundred percent. And and those clients you would, Chris, will you think that those clients are, they're more informed. So there's going to be more understanding of what's happening. Oh, for sure. I do think they know what they're getting. And I think going over the materials with them, they get a little more excited, which is always good to get the client excited and ready for the change. So yeah, I definitely think it's helpful to, and kind of necessary to show them all the materials and get them to approve everything in person. Right. I'd love to hear from each of you. Do you think that, you know, the accessibility of things online, whether on Cherish or other websites or fabric houses now, everything's online, Instagram, everybody's on Instagram all the time, all day long, we know. Uh, Do you think that all of that visual information out there makes your connection with your clients and what they're looking for easier or more complicated? Kita, why don't we start with you? For me, I feel like it's becoming like information overload where I like even myself, I'm not on social as much as I used to be. Don't even really have the desire to be on as much. I feel like I mean, there's times when I feel like I should, you know, that's obviously the way to market, but it's a lot. But um, I don't know. So, and I feel like some of our clients, they're not on there. I add, like, do you, so do you have How a, interesting. have you heard of Howls or are you, what magazines do you, none. Yeah. Like there are, there are clients that, they are completely not in this world, which in a way could be great. 
Mm-hmm. But on one hand, then they don't know their style. Mm-hmm. Right. And Heidi, what about you? Do you think it makes, makes clients more understanding or is it just complicate the, everything? I think it kind of goes both ways. Like I think there is, I, I would say the change over the past three years in terms of like what clients know and are exposed to is like so dramatic to me. I mean, I have clients and I'm like, how do you know about these fabric houses? Like <laughs> I've never even heard of some of these before, yeah. um, which can be wonderful. Mm-hmm. Um, but cl- the clients that we've had, especially like people in, you know, I would say from anywhere from 30 to 45, 50, like that demographic really, you know, they're heavy on Instagram. They follow a lot of designers. Designers are tagging sources. They're following the sources. You know, I've, so these, these clients are, tend to be a little bit more well-versed than they were a few years ago. Um, And I think it can be both beneficial and frustrating at the same time. Um, Sometimes, you know, they're bringing great ideas to the table and it can be really helpful to kick off a project when the client can say like, we love sewn, Rose Tarlow, you know, and you really get an aesthetic direction really quickly then, which I think is very helpful versus, you know, some of these projects where the clients really have no idea. And you're like, I don't know what direction to take this. So it's nice if there's some. Some knowledge. Knowledge. Right. Right. And what about you, Crystal? Yeah, I think. I think it's it goes both ways. I think the one thing I really don't like is they'll get their mindset into what's very trendy and it's kind of difficult to steer them away and to explain one, I don't think it's the right thing for the house or two, this is going to date the house in three or four years. So I, I feel that's per, that's the biggest con to me is really you see, same with Pinterest, Instagram, you see the same thing over and over again, and it's hard to kind of get them out of that groove. Right. I think this has been fascinating. You know, I am not a designer and I don't deal with clients or vendors. So I'm fascinated at how complicated this is and how you guys all steer through this minefield of, you know, producing a house, like who you know, putting a room together. Who knew it was this complicated? But I'd love to get a sense from each of you, your advice to some, uh, to a younger designer, designer younger than you, maybe somebody who's starting out in the field, what are some one or two pointers that they need to keep in mind? Uh, I mean, obviously the contract is crucial and getting things in writing, but what what would be your advice to somebody starting out? Like you, you would never expect that this could be a landmine. Get your measurements right the first time. Um, when you go, when you go and measure our space, get every little detail. Crystal, that's good advice. Yeah, I worked with a couple of people, and their measurements were a little off. And especially in the city, where every square inch is a huge deal. Uh, yeah, so get your measurements right the first time, or measure, measure, measure again. Good. It's that carpenter's advice, measure twice, cut once, yes, you know, yes, it's like yes, so yes. crucial. Yes. Kita, how about you? Yeah, I mean, I have to piggyback on what Crystal says as well, that definitely get the measurements right, but also verify measurements. Because on our drawings where I was like, verify on site, verify on site, because we, you know, we have had things happen. And also make sure that, you know, if you're dealing with a couple or who are the decision makers and make sure they're both on the same page. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's important. Because we've also had some situations where one loves it, this, the other one right. wanted that. And I don't know what else. Um, I guess also enjoy the process. It is a process, you know, enjoy the process and figure out what you're good at and then delegate what you're not. Oh, very good advice. Mm-hmm. How do we minimize disasters? I mean, I think the biggest thing for me is always don't make the same mistake twice. 
So right. it's yeah. expensive enough once, right? <laughs> exactly. You're going to make them all, whether it's, you know, a mistake with a vendor, you didn't read, read a quote thoroughly, you placed the wrong order, or if it's something a mistake with a client, the way you handled the situation, the way you dealt with the contractor, whatever it is, like, I take everything, I always say, I learn something new in this career every single day, even after all these years. So I, I try to just take every experience and learn from it and then not do the same thing again. Well, I think that our listeners are going to really benefit from all your hard one, shall we say, wisdom, <laughs> expensive wisdom in some cases. But I really can't thank you enough. Keita Turner, Heidi Collier, and Crystal Sinclair, my wonderful guests on today's episode of the Cherish Podcast. And thank everyone for listening. You've been listening to the Cherish Podcast, brought to you, of course, by Cherish, which was recently voted by the readers of USA Today as the best place to shop online for furniture and home decor. If you enjoyed this episode, please tell a friend or colleague. Or better yet, go to Apple Podcasts and leave us a review. We appreciate your help in spreading the word. And we would love your ideas for future episodes. Please email us at podcast at cherish.com. The Cherish Podcast is produced by Britta Muller and engineered by Hanger Studios in New York. Until next time.